Okay, so uh, just recently, which I don't know, I'm from Ohio, and we don't have crepe myrtle trees. Here, everybody has crepe myrtle trees. I think it's actually a, a, like a status symbol. So our house has them, and when I drive by other houses that don't, I'm like, hmm, no crepe myrtles, I see. I just think it's something in the South, and I've, I'm, I've jumped on board. The problem is, you can murder these crepe myrtle trees, apparently. It's called crepe murder, and I'm very sensitive to it. So I go in the spring, and I cut them, and instead of putting them at the curb and waiting for the garbage folks to come and get them, who knows when, I take them behind our privacy fence, and we have just a little bit of land back there, and I burn them. And we <laughs> pile them and stack them until they're probably like seven foot high, and I let them get really, really dry, and then we light them on fire, and a 15-foot flame comes from them, and it's awesome. Here's what I do. I tell the boys, hey, come and, come and see this, but stand back. This is really dangerous. The fire is really dangerous. Do not get close to the fire. Don't touch the fire. And I'm just constantly telling them, stay away from this fire. This is really, really dangerous. Do not be anywhere near this. Uh, one of the problems is, as I started thinking about the topic of sex and thinking about illustrations in life that we do something similar, this is the first thing that popped into my mind. So here's what the problem is. If I'm looking at my boys and I'm telling them that fire is bad just because it's fire, what I'm doing is I'm vilifying fire. I have now made fire something that's bad instead of saying, hey, here's this thing that quite frankly, in this moment could be a neutral thing, but really it's actually a good thing. It can heat your home. It can get rid of your crepe myrtle branches. It can do all kinds of things. But you need to be careful around this fire and watch what you do, watch what you touch, watch how close you are, right? Here's, a, here's something that I've noticed just recently doing, uh, well, really for a long time and in my own life, doing premarital counseling is whenever we get to the session on sex, I always ask them, you know, what are some things that you have been taught growing up? And almost all of us would say, well, basically I was always just kind of warned that sex is bad. And I get it as a parent, I get it. I, I, I did it with burning crepe myrtle trees. But here's the problem. If um, we're not careful, we can associate the dangers of sex with the actual good gift of sex. And so the good gift then becomes something that in our children's minds is simply dangerous. And that's what we want to not, not do, right? We want to we say that sex is good, but you need to be aware of the dangers of this thing. So here's the topic. How do we teach our children about sex and prepare ourselves to answer their questions? If you did get a handout, there's uh, like 48 parts to this. Uh, we're probably only going to do the first two, and then I'm going to have some special guests come up, and we'll do a Q&A like we did last week. But the first half here is essentially what does the Bible say? So a few considerations. This is not exhaustive. This is not everything that the Bible has to say about the topic of sex, not even close. It's just some of the things that I think are most helpful to realize as we're thinking about teaching our children about sex. And I'm about to, to do this pretty intensely with our oldest child, and so this was actually really helpful for me as well. But point one is this. Do we know what the Bible says about sex? If we're thinking, okay, oh, this is going to be an awkward conversation. I don't really know what to say or know where to start. The first place, the, the starting point for us is, do you know what the Bible says about sex? Do we know? And so here are a few considerations. Number one, and I want to, like I said, I want to move through these pretty quickly so we can get to kind of the practical stuff and the Q&A. But number one, sex is a good part of God's creation and has clearly defined parameters. So Genesis 1, 26 and 28 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And then you move into Genesis 2.24, which is essentially a commentary on the creation of man in Genesis 1. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then Genesis 1.26 and 28, you have uh, it saying, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So on the sixth day, you have God's declaration essentially, of his entire creation, what he thinks of what he has just done. So it's a good part of God's creation because it's something that precedes Genesis chapter 3, and there are clearly defined parameters put on it. Here are some of those parameters. It is a created man and a created woman and the union of one flesh. So that's the most important thing as we think about this. There's a man, God creates a woman for him, and they are given for this one flesh union. Obviously, one flesh uh, means sex in one sense, but then in another kind of deeper sense, one flesh points to the relational aspect of the Trinity. So you have the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit being a part of this creation, and this woman given to this man is a means whereby the man can experience relationship like God experiences relationship. Obviously, it will come at the cost of sin, but they are given together for, number one, sex, and number two, relational oneness. Okay, so those are the parameters. Man, woman, one fleshness. Number two, sex is given for the purpose of accomplishing God's command. So Genesis 1.28, pull that out. It says, um, oh wait, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So sex then is one man, one woman in one fleshness, but then the outcome of this one fleshness is procreative, right? This is how God continues his act of creation in a sense. But most importantly, as you take Genesis to Revelation, you see that sex is actually a really important, necessary part of God's redemptive plan. I don't think we think of it like that sometimes, but if God intends from eternity past to send Christ to die for his people, then there must be people in order for Christ to die for. So sex then, being procreative, is a part of the way that God unfolds his plan of redemption. I, I, I think that's a, that's a huge important part of teaching our children is them understanding that this goes far beyond just a physical act, right? That there's huge implications to good, healthy, uh, God-given sex. Number three, sexual desire is normal, and sex is a good gift for the mutual benefit of a married couple. Okay, um, have you ever read the book of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, depending on? Some of you are shaking your head very aggressively, okay? Um, listen, I don't ever do this, but I always have a few final points that I never tell you. So there's so if you look at your handout, there's a few final points. I'm not going to share those with you because we never have time. But I will share one of them with you right now. Uh, number four, under a few final points is this. Our view of sex should never be more or less than God's. That's really important. And what I see is that the most common view is one of those. It's not typical that we're in the middle where we have a good, healthy, biblical understanding of sex. We're the people who are either, when I say people, I mean like humanity. <clears throat> we're the people who are either saying, yes, sex is meant to serve you, do whatever you want, like just this is, this is your thing. I mean, literally, the Big Bang is about you being satisfied and finding fulfillment. So go do your thing and do whatever you want to do. And then on the other side, we say, sex is bad, it's horrible, it's always bad until it's right. <laughs> and that's also wrong. So our view of sex should never be more, but it should never be less than God's. So here's what we see in the Song of Solomon. And one of the points I want to make, uh, if you are the type of person who says, yes, God's word was created for God's people, then I think what we also have to say is that all of his word is for all of his people. So the Song of Solomon is intended at some point to be read by a child. That, that is a possibility. God didn't put this in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and think, oh, shoot, I forgot that kids may read their Bibles. 
that's not what happened. <clears throat> and so when you read through the Song of Solomon, you may read and walk away with red cheeks. So, let, <clears throat> so let's read a little bit of it now. <clears throat> and actually, this is not even the bad part. So in the Song of Solomon, you kind of have this going back and forth, this he and she bit throughout where it's him talking about her and her talking about him. So Song of Solomon 7, 6, it says this from his perspective, how beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one, with all your delights. The reason I gave that is because that's a summary of everything that he just talked about. He just talked about a lot. And what he's saying is everything I've just said and every desire that I have for you, I'm going to sum it up like this. Oh, loved one, with all your delights. All of them. <laughs> Whatever he means, he means it. And then her summary statement in Song of Solomon 8:14, she says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She's obviously excited. There's this sense in which there is just this sexual longing between these two people, and they really, really desire one another. And, and they long for each other. And they even long insofar as to say, here are the ways in which I long for you. Here are the ways in which I value your physical body and what you can provide me because of what God has given you for me and me for you. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, <clears throat> Paul kind of gives uh, a little bit of a, an understanding of, of what this, this union together will look like. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The only thing I want to say here really quickly is, um, and I mean, listen, I don't want to be crass, but I've been a guy long enough to know that when you, when, and this is important, when you read 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and it says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, before and likewise the wife to her husband, we think, I don't think you need to tell the husband anything. I, I mean, seriously, though. Like, like when you, uh, listen, I'm not being crass. I'm just being honest. When you think about this, it's like, well, did you really need to say that? Like, this kind of seems natural to us. But here's, and this is why this is important. Because in the first century, especially in the Roman Empire, and probably a lot of others, I don't know about those other cultures, but especially in the Roman Empire, um, women were seen to be the property of men, right? So there, so there weren't really rights in being a woman. And so here's the important part of the act of sex. The woman and the man both have the same worth and value in this act. And men are to understand that this act of sex is just as much about the woman as it is him. That's important, especially if we want to be able to communicate and at some point teach what a healthy sex life looks like. This is not just about two parties trying to figure out how to tango. Like This is about the worth and value of, of the man and the woman equally. Okay, so what we see, though, here from these passages, and then here, let me read uh, Proverbs 5, 15 through 20. It says, and this is, okay, so this is, this is talking about sex. So if you think the Song of Solomon, you need to read through the Proverbs, too, because it's, it's, well, let's just read it. It says, drink water from your own cistern. He's not talking about water from your own well, by the way. It says, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why, uh, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Okay, so sexual desire is normal and sex is a good gift for the mutual benefit of the married couple. So the point here is that sex isn't singular gratification. Right, this is not about self-gratification. And it, that's so important 
that I think that's why Paul does what he does in 1 Corinthians 7, right? It's not singular self-gratification. It's mutual, mutual gratification through giving and receiving, right? So this kind of helps us to understand now the parameters of sex in Genesis 1 and 2, right? When you have this one flesh union pointing to the, the sex act between a husband and a wife, here we see that these passages are kind of ramping up what it's to look like, right? So it's not just a husband and a wife coming together to make babies. It's a husband and a wife coming together for mutual satisfaction. This act is intrinsically about both of these people. It's not about one above the other. It's not about, okay, well, I guess, you know, we'll just serve you. No, it's about giving and receiving. And here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uses this word deprive. And, and this is really, this is important too, because I think in one sense, we understand it rightly. So deprive obviously has to do with withholding. We know that because what Paul says is, do not deprive one another unless you're taking a break to pray or do spiritual things. Uh, and then I would add other things like when it's just not safe or good or right to have sex. The easiest example is that when your wife has a baby, either vaginally or through C-section, you don't want to have sex. There's an agreed upon time where you will deprive one another, right? I think we all get that. We all understand that. But I think the other thing that we need to understand about deprive is deprive also means deprivation. It, it means lack. So don't let one another be lacking in this area. So it's not just withholding. It's also considering, do you feel fulfilled or satisfied in this moment? And now we're not talking about just the husband or the wife. We're considering the couple together. Are we in a state of deprivation in regards to our sex life? Or do we both feel fulfilled and satisfied mutually? Right? That's important because when Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about the authority of our own bodies, right? I don't have the authority of my body. My wife does. And I have the authority of my wife's body when it comes to the act of sex. So what it means is that we serve one another in this act. So in a sense, our sex life should be from, and here's like the best part about it, is from our perspective, we should be sacrificially serving our spouse when it comes to our sex life. But here's the beauty of God's good gift. You think, well, man, that kind of stinks. If you're both doing that, you're both giving and you're both receiving. That's the beauty. You don't have to serve yourself because your spouse is serving you, vice versa. That's what healthy sex is. Number four, sex is a means of bringing glory to God. Okay, can, just go back to point three real quick. We live in a fallen world. And so, you know, as we think about these things, if we're thinking, well, okay, that's great, but this just doesn't work out like this. Yeah, I mean, most stuff doesn't, but that doesn't mean we can't fight to, to have this quality of sex life or that we shouldn't teach these things. We should just be like, well, you know, here's what the Bible says, but let me tell you how it's really been. Okay, your personal opinion and view is not superior to the Bible. None of us. And so we need to be very careful teaching anything about the Bible from what is actually our real perspective and what we've really experienced in life. All right, we're sinners. We're the ones who struggle with sin, not the Bible. All right, number four, sex is a means of bringing glory to God. So 1 Corinthians 6, 5, 15 through 20, here Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, this is another important part, and this is all, almost kind of like a, it can be like a little bit of a cop-out, but it's a really important thing, right? Sex is a means of bringing glory to God. So when you read something like 1 Corinthians 6, or you think about all that the Bible has to say about sex, um, there is a sense of mystery that revolves around sex 
and the gloriousness of it, right? So it's, it's not just good. It's not just enjoyable. What Paul says here is it's, it's holy. H- have you ever wondered, you're reading through this and you're like, okay, uh, I know that Paul's talking about sex. He's talking about being united with one another. Okay, that's helpful. That's helpful. Okay, Paul, really weird place to drop the fact that we're united with Christ, right? Like it's a weird, it's a weird place to be like, oh, and by the way, you've been redeemed by Christ and you are now one with him. I said, wait, I thought we were talking about sex. Like, Paul, I'm so confused. Well, what Paul is doing is he's pointing to kind of the mysterious holiness of sex. It goes far beyond just being good or pleasurable, and it goes beyond even procreation, right? What he's saying is that a healthy sex life fortifies our union with Christ, and it increases our spousal oneness. So sex mysteriously actually is for the benefit of our union with Christ and the oneness that we have with our spouse. Now, let me explain that to you. I can't. I have no idea other than the fact that God has given us the parameters for sex. He has told us how it is good, and he has also called us to to do that act with our husband or our wife. And when we do that thing, when we serve God by doing what he has commanded us to do, it is a means of worship to him. I don't want to go beyond that and try to figure out some sort of weird way that the Song of Solomon is actually Christ in the church. John Calvin is wrong. The reformers were so weird when they read the Song of Solomon. They were so like prudish about sex that they're like, oh, this is obviously Christ in the church. The Song of Solomon literally says breasts. I can't. I get it. We can make all of the allegories, and that's all they have to be, but this is a husband and a wife. And so I don't want to try to go beyond the mystery and be like, well, let me explain it to you. I don't know. I only know that good, healthy sex, according to what God has given us, is a means of worship, and it is a holy act. That's really important, because I think when we think about sex, especially if we have come from the camp of, well, it's only ever bad until it's good, what usually happens the first year of marriage or so for maybe one or more of the spouses is you kind of have these mixed feelings. Like you have obviously the excitement of being able to do these things and it's right and good, but then you're also like, I don't know, it's kind of weird and dirty too. Like, man, this is a holy thing that pleases God. It pleases him. And in a non-perverted way, when God sees us having sex according to his good design, it pleases him. That's all I know. But, but we have to make sure that we know that and we understand that it goes far beyond just the things that we can see and feel. Number five, uh, obviously we all, we all understand this. Um, sex is one of the most abused of God's gifts, right? <clears throat> so you have things like uh, masturbation, and I'll talk about that for just a second because there are mixed views on that. Pornography, obviously we would all say it's wrong, and then sex outside of marriage, which we would all say is wrong, and explicitly biblical. So masturbation. I um, have heard from several different people throughout just my time of coming into ministry and thinking through these things and thinking about discipling people and helping them through issues of pornography. Uh, I've heard it said to me specifically, but then also from people that have been counseled elsewhere that masturbation is never talked about in the Bible. And in fact, it's a good way of avoiding actual sexual sin. Here's what I'll say. Um, I cannot point to a passage in the Bible and make a very explicit, okay, masturbation is wrong. But I, I think here's what I can do. If sex is given for the mutual gratification of you and your spouse, then anytime you are finding self-gratification, that is singular gratification, not like your spouse and you are having sex and obviously you're self-gratified. I'm not saying that. I'm saying singular self-gratification removed from the husband and wife union. I think you are defeating the purpose of what God has given sex for. And so what I would say, and again, you can have, you'll have to go to the Bible and figure out your own thing. I think, I think masturbation is a sin. I think it is wrong. And not only that, if it's not, 
it's it's the um hey we're doing the whole campfire thing now but we're gonna throw some gasoline and now this good gift has become like really really dangerous so now what you would say is okay if you're going to introduce other factors into this you need to know that you're making it even more dangerous than it was before right so sex is one of the most abused gifts right um well, here's what I want to say. Our sexual desire, I, I want to define and d- define that, right? So when I said in point three, sexual desire is normal, I think we need to qualify and define that, right? So if we define it, what we're saying is that we're desiring this good gift. Nothing really outside of that. We're not saying, um, we're not, <laughs> I had, I'll tell you in just a second. It was, it was so cute. I loved it. But um, we're not saying we go into what is called lust or we start picturing or fantasizing about the actual acts of sex. We desire for ourselves the good gift of sex. But this good desire also needs to be managed. So what does that mean? It means not letting our desire be an opportunity for sin. So we cannot find ourselves desiring this good gift in a way that brings us to a place of sin. So I had a young man recently, um, we were talking about these things and he said, hey, I've always had a question and he's about to be married. And I said, what, bud? I didn't call him bud. He's, that's, I'm thinking of my own children, but it's like, what? What, what, is, your, what is your question? He said, when I get married, um, can I lust after my wife? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, can I lust after her? And I was like, sure. <laughs> like, that's fine. But there's a difference between desiring just the good gift and desiring what Solomon desires and his bride desires, right? We have to be careful not to give opportunity for sin. So desiring the good gift, but making sure that it's not an opportunity for sin. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, Uh, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, right? So we desire, yet we wait, right? That's kind of the whole point. How do I manage this thing? You can desire this good gift, and yet you wait, and you don't give opportunity for sin, right? Uh, This is the will of God, your sanctification growing in Christ-likeness, even as it pertains to your sex life and your understanding of sex. Right? So the gift of sex is about stewardship. That's what it is for all of us, whether you're a single person or whether you are a married couple or whether eventually you're talking to your children, sex is a stewardship. Right? Pursuing, uh, or excuse me, purity, or you can even call it virginity, but I think purity is better, is about the pursuit of holiness. We want our children to be pure. We want them to be virgins, not just so they can have that claim, but so that their worship of God will be right. right? If, if our sex life in a mysterious sense is about the worship of God, then withholding ourselves from that until it is the time is a way of worshiping God with this desire that he has given us. Right? Okay, so a few practical considerations, and then I'll bring our special guests up. Um, when and how do we introduce the topic of sex and why? So I hope you've realized um, I'm not an expert on any of these things. I don't claim to be, and I also don't claim to have like a perfect method. So when I say practical considerations, I'm not saying you're going to walk out of here and be like, okay, today we have to implement step three. Well, it's not a step. This is not a method. I am not somebody who's ever going to write about these things and you're going to read it on the internet and be like, man, this person just really gets it. I don't. I really don't. And so here are just some considerations I created for myself and for you. So when do we do it? Well, ideally it begins young and with creation. So what I mean by that is we need to take every opportunity to teach our children about the sovereign creator who created and defined all things, including our bodies. Right, so from the very beginning, as soon as our children are essentially born, you can start talking about this creator who created and defined all things, including our body. So the parts of our body and how those parts function. So it can be as sim- something as simple as you pee from here and you, I don't know what the word you use, so you number two from here. I mean, that, like, don't undervalue how important that is. I mean, seriously, when you think about it, it's just like, okay, well, that, we, we just all do that stuff, and so it's no big deal. 
No, God created you and he created you to work in this way. Your body functions in this way because God created it to, right? So what we're doing is we're setting the creator-creature um, understanding of how things happen. Right? You, you are not the creator, you're the creature. Here's how God has created you. The reason that is so important is because the thing our world is so huge on is personal bodily autonomy. You are in control of your body. You are the one who gets to say no. You are the one who gets to say yes. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but we get to declare everything that we want to declare. That's dangerous if we're saying, okay, uh, but wait, you don't get to define it. God is the creator. You're the creature. And so, I mean, just think about it. There are certain things with your body parts that you can't do with the other body parts. As much as I would love for my ears to be able to see things, they can't. I don't have that right or that power to make that happen. And so we need to understand the limitations of our body and where they've come from. Number two, if not young, so I understand that there are some of you who have probably older kids and you're thinking, well, we did not do this when they were younger, so what about us? Well, I don't want you to feel um, like bad about yourself or like there's no hope. Here's what I would say. If they're not young, then inundate them with good teaching and let them ask good questions, right? So create a, an environment of transparency, so much so that you could even go home today, maybe not today, maybe you need to process, maybe tomorrow um, or next week. I don't know, however long your processing time is. Maybe you say, hey, uh, there are some things that we want to talk to you about, and we've just not done it the way we wanted to do it. And so we want to start having these conversations. That's transparency. And I think it's just really helpful. And, and it's not too late ever. But here's what I would also say. Don't undervalue the local church in this regard. If you have teenagers, I don't have them yet, but I, uh, I can't imagine what that's going to be like. Um, does it get easier? Please tell me. Please, please tell me. Um, no, it doesn't. Of course, I'm a youth pastor. I know how your kids are. And st stop sending them to me like that. I'm just joking. We have great kids. We have great kids. But I do understand the challenges of a, t of a teenager, especially you factor in that, that particular moment of puberty and teenager. And I mean, oh my, that, that moment in our lives is kind of like a blur. We're all like, I don't even, I don't know what happened. I don't know what just happened. And I mean, it's just, it is crazy. But I, I, I want to point to the value of the local church, the teaching the, for, for your kids in particular, the teachings that they will get, the small groups that they will sit in, and then also just uh, me. So I, I really value teaching all of God's word to all of God's people and doing it in a way that is extremely appropriate and in a way that's helpful and practical to them. And so whether it's this church or another church, find a youth group, find some people who will also invest into your child's life and talk about the creator who created them. It, it will help you so much. Number three, uh, so how much do we teach? Well, I think this is kind of just what I would say on it, enough to truly answer their questions and curiosity curiosities, but not more than needed. The reason I say that is a couple of principles here. Ecclesiastes, a principle of wisdom. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That, that, that principle spans everything in your life, everything. So if you're thinking, should I have this donut? Well, is this the season? I mean, I seriously, like it's just a principle that can, I mean, some of you walk by the cafe and you're like, oh no, don't look, don't look. There's cinnamon rolls. I can't, like I'm doing my thing. The summer's coming up. I got to have what is my version of a beach body, right? Uh, I'm saying that to me. Like my beach body is just whatever I roll up with. But Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So this kind of goes back to the principle of you need to be able to talk about these things. You need to talk about the good gift of sex. You need to talk about desiring the good gift of sex and yet not giving opportunity for sin. So we want to be really careful that we don't give our children so much that now we have actually raised their curiosities far beyond what they were before. Now, I don't know what that is for your children, and I'm not about to try to tell you, well, here's what you do. Here's what I will say, and I think this is probably wise. 
um, our teaching about sex should develop along the lines of their sexual development. So obviously you're going to talk to a 13-year-old differently than you're going to talk to a four-year-old, right? But all, the only thing I do know is as best as we can, we want to be preemptive in these things. So we all understand that between probably uh, somebody in the medical field, do, do girls hit puberty a little earlier? Like, is 10 too early? 10? Yeah, you're the perfect person to talk to, actually. You literally run a medical school. So what are we talking about? 10 to, let's go guys and girls, from age 10 to what's like hitting puberty late? Uh, guys or girls, whoever. Okay, so from 10 to 16, you can assume that a child is going to hit puberty sometime in that. So you know that at the age of eight or even early nine, you are ahead of that curve likely. That's what I mean. We want to be preemptive. We don't want to give them more, but we want to know what's coming next so we can know ourselves, how to respond to their questions, but also to how to start introducing our teachings beforehand, right? All right. Um, number four, along the same lines, if possible, we want our teaching about sex to be the first introduction, not the alternative view. That is huge. And this is something I see in youth group all the time. Three years ago, and largely it was uh, our non-member kids, but I said, hey, we're going to talk about, we're doing this new series, what does the Bible say about dot, dot, dot. That was really pretty, pretty clever, the dot, dot, dot thing, right? And then we'll have all these topics. One of them was um, homosexuality. And so I introduced it from this stage to our kids, and I can't tell you how many kids came at the end of that, and they were like, hey, I'm, I'm really glad we're doing this. Do you think it's a sin? And I'm like, well, um, much more sensitively than this, I said, I, that's literally what I just said. Like, I did just say that. But, but they, they, like, they, they didn't hear it. Because my biblical view was the alternative to what they had already been conditioned to believe. And the alternative view is really hard sometimes to overcome. So Deuteronomy 4.10 it says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach them to their children. Okay, so our duty as parents is to be vessels of truth to our children, right? That's, that's just your job as a parent, as a, as a Christian. Your job is to be a vessel of truth for your children. So you're coming here right now to be filled up. You're coming um, in a little bit into the worship service to be filled up. Now, if you get filled and you just stay filled and you are never pouring out that truth and what God has done through these moments in your life to your children or other people, then we're kind of misunderstanding our role, right? This is what Paul, or excuse me, this is what Moses is telling the people. Only take care and be diligent and remember these things, teach these things, especially to your children, so you don't forget the truth of what God has done. Right? So when it comes to this stuff, we come to these things, not just to be more knowledgeable, but to eventually pour these things out into the lives of our children. I think one of, I get it, we live in a fallen world, one of the, the needed things, but one of the probably worst things that ever came about, and listen, I get it, you can be mad at me, that's fine. One of the worst things that has ever come about in sex education is safe sex. I get it, we live in a fallen world. We're talking about combating diseases, we're talking about unplanned pregnancies, I get it, I get it, I get it, but there is no such thing as safe sex. There is either holy sex or sinful sex. And so for us as believers, we have to contend with that reality right? But here's one of the subtle things that will happen. This idea of, and I get it, it's out of necessity living in a fallen world, this idea of pushing safe sex that will come into the mind of your child. And so we want to make sure that we're not the alternative to that, that, that we are the ones teaching them this view. Number five, a biblical understanding of sex will help them see, understand, and flee from the dangers of sexual sin. Right, so our children, they will develop a view of sex. There, there is no doubt. I mean, we've all been whatever age we were when the curiosity started coming, right? Our job is to help them cultivate a desire for godliness, right? It's not just teaching them about what's right and wrong. It's about teaching them to pursue Jesus above everything. 
if your teaching or talk about sex doesn't ultimately have the view of pushing them to Jesus, then I think you know, you, we need to reevaluate. Right? This is not just about the right and the wrong or knowing what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. Ultimately, this whole teaching is for the purpose of godliness. And then finally, number six, sex should be a part of our normal conversation, but not an all-consuming conversation or topic. One of the things we need to realize is that sex is not the chief end of man, which means it's not the most important thing about us. That's totally opposite to what the world believes right now in particular, right? We'll talk about sexuality, gender issues, transgenderism next Sunday. Uh, But for now, all we'll say is that if this gift can at some point extinguish, I don't know what age that is, and we don't need to talk about, Alice, the ages for when you have no sexual desire anymore. We know when puberty happens, and then we'll all just wait until the demise of our bodies. But at some point, you just ain't having sex anymore. Maybe you want to, but like literally your body just gave out and you can't. But even in heaven, sex is is not a need anymore. And so it is not the ultimate end, and that means it's not the most important thing about us. Right, So not having sex does not lead to a lesser experience as a human. Right? That's, that's what we want to remind them. Like, You can be someone who abstains from these things and still have the greatest possible experience as a human without ever having sex because it's not the most important thing about you. Will you guys come on up? All right, just introduce yourselves really quickly. Well, first, everybody take a deep breath. <laughs> I'm Samantha Orlich. And I'm Jeremy Horlich, uh, our husband, uh, and we have three kids, um, William, 11 and a half, uh, Caitlin, 10, and Charlotte, six and a half. Okay, so I have a few questions for you guys. Uh, when did you realize that you needed to start talking about having conversations about sex with your children? And secondarily, where'd you begin? Okay, so I'm going to answer this one first. Um, both of us come from pretty broken backgrounds, uh, not good models. And for me, um, I don't know about other men in here, but really it was not a concept. Like, I don't know what I was thinking when I went into marriage, um, but it was just not something that was on my plate. It really didn't come up until I married Samantha. She's very intentional. Um, and then also, some of you know, we were uh, we served on the field. And so as part of that training for going on the field there was a lot of um just sexual body safety children and so it wasn't until for me as a man it wasn't until then that i started thinking about oh wait you know i need to think about this with my kids i was a middle school teacher um whenever i came to christ and so um that first year after i came to christ i looked in my classroom and saw that many of my middle school students were already sexually active so i didn't have kids then and i wasn't married then but i knew that it was really important for parents to be the people that talk to their kids about sex first um, because of what i was seeing in the public school classroom and so that was before we had kids and then once we had kids like jeremy said we went through some trainings about body safety and so um For us, we started really young. Um, We taught our kids about their bodies at age two. As soon as they had words for their parts, I have books about those things that they gave to us through our trainings that really helped that open up those conversations along the way. So it doesn't start with sex at age two. It starts with your body, keeping your body safe, God's design for all of your body so that your kids are protected when they're little from dangers that do exist in Christian communities. And then that opens up those conversations for future dialogue about all of these things that we all get super anxious about, you know, um, but they're not odd to our kids if we talk to them openly and transparently about things as they grow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point because it is true that there's not much that makes our kids shy or odd in the home until like it becomes a, odd thing that we just never talk about yeah and one thing i'll add to that and a lot of our answers i think are going to blend together like um but also reading the bible right if to your point if you're if you start in genesis with reading the bible with your kids guess what you're eventually going to get to man and woman you're eventually going to get to them having babies you're going to get to judah and tamar 
Like that's a that's a story, right? And so um one example, and I think this is gonna lead into another question, but I love your fire example of the the crepe myrtles. But um one way I like to think of it is think of a swimming pool with a deep end, right? And you've never gone in before. You can stand on the if you've ever seen a kid stand on the edge of the diving board or stand on the edge of a deep end and look in, they're like, This is terrifying. There's no way I'm getting in there, right? That's if you wait to have the sex talk when it's quote time to have the sex talk but if you enter in and the stairs and the shallow end and you're looking out you know eventually i'm going to the deep end right and so as you have conversations about body safety and you know boy and your boy and your girl and this is your private parts of it right and you're reading the bible that's entering into the shallow end and the steps and you know where you're going right so just that's kind of a helpful thing for us to think about so as you guys have considered these things, what has been helpful to you and what has not been helpful? Um, what has not been helpful is um, being anxious about it. That has not served me well as a mom who cares about my kids um, and needing to entrust that to the Lord. And, you know, what has been helpful is really good resources that were given to us. Um, the Bible being the best resource but also i brought some resources in case anybody has never seen resources about these things um we started with body safety a really good book was i said no keeping your privates private like a kid to kid guide it's about a little boy who goes to a sleepover and um his mom has taught him how to keep himself safe and so he in response to this experience that he had at a sleepover, writes a book with his mom. It's really good. It gives kids a plan. It does talk about all those things. The reason it worked for our family to do it with books was because um, we read aloud to our kids a lot. And so it's a, just a natural part of our family life. Um, there was also like a book called God Made All of Me. Those all started talking about all those things. And then, um, a book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures is about keeping your kids safe from porn. Um, it's a very good book. Uh, a Terrible Thing Happened is just a book that we read to our kids over the years. We didn't just like sit down and read all these books at one time. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> as like a, like this is the month that we're going to talk about everything. Um, this book just kind of is a, a story that when anything happens, what that we're kind of unsure of, like how do we talk about those things? And it kind of teaches kids to that talking about things, even if they're uncomfortable, helps us work through them. Trauma, things like that is kind of involved in that book. Then the sex series that we have chosen to use is called God's Design for Sex. Um, and in case anybody's wondering about the ages, which one of the questions might ask, the first book is designed for ages three to five. So if you're wondering, like, when does this start? This book is designed for age three to five. Our kids are homeschooled, and so they were a little bit more protected from the world per se. No one is safe from whatever ideas are out there. So we didn't start at three with this book. We started closer to five with this book with parental you know, discernment on our part about where our kids were. Some wise people have told me over the years, older people who have grown kids have said, wherever you think your kids are, they're a step ahead of that. And you want to be the first ones to introduce things to your kids so that they know to come to you when they have questions. And so all of these books, what they did for our family is give us a common language to talk about things. They've made it so that our kids feel comfortable talking to us. Um, obviously, we don't have grown kids. And so I'm like shaking, thinking of coming up here to talk to you guys because I know that we could be totally messing this up. Um, but these resources were very, very helpful for us. They gave us the language that we needed. One of the most helpful things for us was that we sat down together as a couple and discussed what we wanted to talk about, when we wanted to talk about it, why we wanted to talk about it together and got on the same page. We kind of talked about why we need to do this, what things we want to include, how far is too far to talk about things. And the books helped guide us in that discussion together and then being able to talk to our kids. And being ready for those questions when they come 
um, was really helpful for us because we had already kind of discussed it ahead. Yeah, and I would say um, those resources have been very helpful coming from a guy who nobody ever taught me anything. I mean, zero. Like, you don't want to know the wisdom I got, like, from my dad, right, or whoever. Um, I learned most of the stuff from my teenage peers in middle school, right, or what I saw other teenagers doing, right? So this was particularly helpful, um, and I would encourage you guys, just read it, even if, you know, read it through yourself first, because it gives you vocabulary, it gives you concepts, it gives you, you know, uh, approaches and things to think through. One thing that's not helpful um, is when you go to talk to other people and they kind of have the ostrich head in the sand approach, and they're like, ah, it's not really, you know, not really that important or you know eh, i'll get to it when i'm 16 or, or when my kids are 16 or whatever because that you know if you start having those conversations with people it kind of start like you know discouraging you and so what's been helpful for us is talking to each other but also having other kind of peer families and older families that we look to that's encouraging us to because it can be very you know jumping in the deep end is is very scary, right? And so um, just having people to encourage us. One more thing on that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, when in regards to like, so we very much value input from people who've gone before us, older, wiser people. This is one area which he's going to touch on next week, I think, that our, the people who went before our generation have never dealt with some of the things that, that we're being faced with as parents. And so I think it's important to realize that if you're the older, you know, people that you tell that to younger people who come to you and that you're open with them and say, you know what, like I didn't meet somebody who was homosexual until I was 40, you know, and some of our kids are, are in situations where they're having to deal with those at very, very young ages and all these new ideas that, that, people who came before us didn't have to talk about with their kids. And so it's really important that we give them a biblical view. There are reviews about this set on Amazon that will freak you out and make you not want to read them. You're welcome to look through them so that you don't have to trust their, you know, views on that. Just giving that as a caveat. Yeah. 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 No. And I mean, the best thing about Amazon is if you get something and you want to send it back, you can. So yeah, and then try something else. Uh, yeah, no, and that's a great point too. And next week is really important because one of the things that, so even talking about something like homosexuality or even transgenderism, one of the things that some of our students have even encountered at their schools is something called a furry. And you're thinking, I don't even know what that is. And it's just someone who identifies as an animal. And so the things that they are seeing or being introduced to at the ages that they're being introduced to them is pretty shocking. And, and so it's just, it's stuff that we need to realize that, yeah, I mean, we just have not experienced these things and, and many of our children are. Okay. So what are some of the things we'll, we'll call this the last question. What are some of the things you wish you had done differently or plan to do differently? Cause you have a, a range of ages with your children. Yeah. Um, some things that, that I would do differently, um, would be not to be anxious about what, what you talked about which is normal sexual development, right? And this is one thing we learned in training, right? Is they talk about, you know, sometimes parents can freak out if there's like a four-year-old and a four-year-old and they're playing and, and they say, oh yeah, mommy and daddy, we pretended to play family or whatever. Like, you know, as Christian, we're like, oh no, radar going off, like beep, 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 beep. You shouldn't be doing this stuff. But there are things that are kind of normal, just, uh, development right and their brains are trying to figure things out i remember one of our kids you know when samantha was um having uh, one of our children the other one was pretending to breastfeed with another one you know another friend and it's like that's weird <laughs> it's like no they're just mimicking what they see they're figuring things out right and so like there's things that are naturally development but uh -huh. if you do what i did with some you know one of my children came to me and was talking to me about something and we're like you know like freaking out because it's like the questions they're asking or the things they're talking about or their desire i'm like oh no we've lost them you know mm -hmm. like no right and this was yeah. where there's one of these books i think it's the green one for the older one and it gets into puberty it talks about 
And this was so helpful for me. It talks about your kid is going to go from one day saying, whether they're a boy or a girl, going, ugh, no, thinking about girls is terrible, or thinking about boys are terrible, to like the very next week, they're like getting, you know, a uh, little anxious around certain people being around and they're like, Oh, and I got, and it's like, if I didn't have those resources, I would have probably done more of the overreacting, which I have done overreacting. Right. But just understanding that some of this stuff is not sinful. It's just natural. Like what you talked about, but as you talk to your kids about that, again, the Bible is going to be your chief resource. In Song of Solomon, I think it's 3.5, it says, do not awaken love, basically, until it's ready, right? And so we explain to our kids, like, sex is healthy. It's desirable. Mommy and daddy, we desire one another. We delight in one another. Because when they start talking about, ooh, I, don't, I can't ever imagine myself, right, delighting is well, that's weird you know say no but as that starts to develop you to tyler's point need to be on guard do not awaken that until you're ready and so what does that lead to that leads to conversations about well what does it mean to be ready well for a husband a husband needs to be able to take care of a wife husband needs to be able to provide for his wife a husband needs to be able to lead his wife spiritually if you're not ready for that you don't need to be even entertaining these ideas, right? And so, anyways, you know, just going through the Bible uh, and not freaking out over just natural development uh, is what I would say I would do differently. Um, what I would do differently, I'm not sure yet because we're not sure how it's going to turn out. So, if you ask me in ten years, I might have a different answer. Um, I am extremely thankful that we chose to open these type of conversations with our kids when they were really little. I'm so thankful for the sweet conversations that we get to have that get to point their hearts to the Lord. I am extremely thankful that even though, yes, there have been so many awkward moments and moments where I'm just sitting there like, oh my goodness, I do not know what to say right now. You know, I will pray over you. Those moments to like pray over the struggles and pray over the things that are happening in their minds and their hearts are just priceless to me. And so I'm really, really thankful that we pushed through the difficulties or the awkwardness. I'm thankful that it was, you know, not something I want to change in that regard. I would like to change that. I have a lot of baggage in my background that makes me super alert to sexual abuse. And so I have a lot of anxiety around those things. My kids can feel that anxiety. They know that I get anxious, but I wouldn't take back, you know, like putting good boundaries in place and talking about those things. I've talked to my kids about my background and things that have happened within my family in an age appropriate way. Um, and so I wouldn't redo those things, but I do, you know, wish that I were able to give that anxiety part to the Lord a little more quickly. Yeah. Um, I'll say one last thing. None of us are experts. And so one of the reasons I wanted you guys here instead of a couple that's older is I think sometimes we can be tempted to think, well, if we do all of the right things, then our kids will turn out the right way. And uh, so that's why you're here. And it's like, well, I don't really know what we would do different because we're doing it right now. That's really important though, is being able to look around the room and not necessarily say, who are, who are the people with all the wisdom but who are people that I can go to and workshop this thing with? Right? Who can we go and talk to and brainstorm with how they're doing this? What has been going well? What are some questions? And so just you should value the local church and value people like this who want to think about these things. And so if you uh, are wondering, okay, well, yeah, we do want to get started. We really just don't know. Just start here. Come have a conversation with them. Have a conversation with somebody here. If you have an older child that you're wondering, okay, well, what do we do? Come to me, I'll connect you with someone with an older child, and we will do this thing as best as we can to the glory of God together. So let's thank our guests, and then you can be dismissed.